0: This is Toastcaster, your communication leadership and learning lab with your host, Greg Gazin. Episode 112 Not There Yet Unique Narrative Essay Style Podcasting with our guest, Terrence C. Gannon. Welcome to Toastcaster, your communication leadership and learning lab. This is Greg Gazin. And once again, we have an exciting episode for you. Our guest today is Terence C. Gannon. He's a podcaster, writer, social media marketer, and developer of many digital projects. He co-edits Ignition Sequence Start, an online publication focused on applying state-of-the-art technology to more traditional industries. You can find many of his creations on Medium and LinkedIn, and many have been picked up by publications for Skies Magazine and the BOE Report. Terrence is also the master behind the Work Not Work show and the Not There Yet podcasts, and he's a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. In addition, through Interlog, he helps organizations tell their stories and ensures the right audience hears them. With us on the line from Calgary, Alberta, Canada, Terrence C. welcome to Toastcaster.
1: Greg, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much
0: for having me. It is an absolute honor to finally talk to you in person.
1: (laughs) (laughs) An unedited version of me, which is not anything like you hear on the actual episodes.
0: Now, I discovered, originally I discovered your Not There Yet podcast through the Alberta Podcast Network. The Alberta Podcast Network, Karen Online, was encouraging the members and people to check out members of the of the network. So I started looking through the various podcasts and looking at the titles and selecting a few. I came across Not There Yet. Now, I can't recall exactly why I was pulled to it. Obviously, the title intrigued me. But then when I started listening to the podcast, I was hooked. Now, your podcast, it's a little different than some of the typical podcasts that are out there. Quite often, the podcasts are interviews or perhaps there's an individual just talking about a particular subject who is just really talking to the microphone or talking to the audience. But yours is, it's described as short essay. So maybe tell us a little bit about your podcast.
1: Thank you, Greg, for the for the opportunity to tell you a little bit about not there yet. First and foremost, spoiler alert, if people are looking for a logic to the nature and a variety of stories that are that are found there, there isn't any. They tend to meet one of two criteria, and they are either personal recollections. Things like Gutenberg on Broadway or Mexico nineteen sixty-nine are stories of when I was a kid at various ages and the experiences that I had. So they're personal recollections. And there are also things that I really care about. And it's everything from the oil and gas industry to a lot of aviation stories, because that's a subject that interests me. So I I find something that I find interesting and I try and produce a story that I think I would wanna listen to and therefore that others would wanna listen to. I read a book a few years ago called um, On, On Writing Well by William Zinser, I believe. And one of the things that he talked about was the fact that every writer, even if they have... No intention of ever podcasting. they should always read their material out loud in order to see if it has an authentic voice and whether or not it it sounds right and So I began to do that, and that's really where the podcast came from was to try and write well and by writing well, I used the tool of reading the material out loud and began to record them that's kind of where the where it's come from. I think I've just released my thirty third episode. The most recent one is on is on the Avro Arrow. It's an interesting subject. It has great resonance for me. It has great interest for me. And I just thought it would be of interest to the audience. And it seems to have come out quite well.
0: Now, that fully explains what I was going to ask you next, which was why this format? It really makes a lot of sense why you put it in this particular format. Again, as a Toastmaster, as a presenter, as a speaker, quite often we're thinking about presenting from the stage putting an essay as you would call it is not something that you would you would read from the stage and the same thing with podcasts as i mentioned earlier podcasts quite often are typically interviews you know one or more two or more people or often maybe there's just one individual talking into the microphone just retelling or recounting something that happened but yours when you're reading it or when you're delivering it it feels like it's coming from a book but yet it has life to it
1: I honestly try and do both. I try I I when I release an episode, I also release release at the same time the entire text on Medium and I try and build audiences for both. I do create links between the two, but I my assumption is is that a number of people are reading the essay and a number number of people who are listening to the essay and that they there may be some small overlap, but for the most part, they're different audiences. But I think both are served by that. I think that the writing is improved. It's amazing once I think I'm finished writing uh, and I start reading it, boy, there are a lot of revisions that come because it just doesn't sound right when it's spoken. So anyway, the point I was going to make, though, is that I do publish on both, and, and I, I guess I run the risk of splitting the audience, but I am actually writing for two audiences, the people who would rather read and the people who would rather listen. And in some cases, that'll be the same person. but But for the most part, I try and write strong material, and I think that's improved by producing the podcast. And I think, frankly, the podcast's are more compelling and more interesting because they're based on a structured text, which as you say, and you're very kind, thank you, is that I try and add some life to them. I don't act them in sort of a formal sense, but I do certainly the emotions that are there. I try and convey the emotion if I can through tone of voice and pacing and what have you. And in some cases, I, I do create characters or try and create characters where it's appropriate, which is very rarely, but every once in a while, there's something that just needs a slightly different sounding voice. And I try and do that as well. So am I narrating? Am I performing? Am I speaking? I, I'm not sure exactly, but it's something that combines all of those things. And it's really intended to to serve, like I say, serve the two audiences, people who would rather listen, and those people who would rather read. And, and hopefully they both benefit from that.
0: What I found fascinating was listening to the podcasts. At first, it was more along the lines of of entertainment. I thought this is really interesting. Maybe I, perhaps I can learn something. I knew about the story of the Avro Arrow. However, I didn't know a lot of the depth and a lot of the insight that you offered. I didn't really know the story in that much depth. I watched the documentary once. Mm. What I found is again, as a, as a speaker and presenter is listening for entertainment was one thing. Listening to learn new things was another thing. But what I also found interesting is that The the methods that you use is something that you could use to learn to be able to perhaps tell your own story, whether it's a corporate story, whether it's a personal story, or whether it's some piece of information that you're trying to get across to your audience.
1: One of the things that you hear quite often, you shouldn't bury the headline. Whatever is interesting about a story is that you really want to start with that. In fact, I'm going to give my English 11 teacher from (laughs) more years than I care to, to say my English 11 teacher, Mrs. Beckett, credit for educating me on the notion of the thesis statement, that really the first sentence or the first sentence or two of any new, anything that you write should really give the readers, it should hook the readers more than anything. Using the Avro arrow as an example, the part that intrigued me about that whole story was how rapidly it came to a conclusion and how unexpected it was. So where I started with that story was the actual test pilot guy called Spud Pataki, Flying the last flight of the arrow, which was the only the 66th flight of the arrow, did he know or did he have any inkling at all that when he walked away from that plane on that day, that that would be the last time that plane would ever fly. And I just I was intrigued with that. And while this, the Avro story is complicated and it has a political component and it has a, a, a technology component and, and a whole series of things, to me, the most interesting part of that story and the place to start was the headline that I didn't want to bury was the moment when he walked away for the last time and did you know that? And I think that the bigger the bigger picture is that every time you encounter somebody, every time you you do something that you've been doing for a while – doesn't it cross your mind every once in a while? I wonder if this is the last time I'll ever do this. I lost my father last year. And, you know, I can think of very specific examples where we would have done very mundane things that both of us enjoyed and didn't realize at the time it was the last time we were doing it and the last time we would ever do it. And so, again, when I when I wrote the Arrow story, I, I was sort of intrigued with that. To be honest with you, the rest of the story kind of wrote itself. I tried to make it have... Uh, a little bit of universality in the sense that it wasn't just about a plane that Canada didn't build. It was really about the loss of optimism in Canada, more than anything, and I think that's the bigger picture, and that's really where I end with the story, is a lot of people didn't think we needed it, and then it was obsolete technology and what have you, but the real underlying damage of, of destroying the arrow was, like I say, the loss of optimism in Canada. That's the bigger picture. So I sort of, I started with the headline that I think would, people would grab people's attention and then bring that through to a, to a larger truth or a larger theme, if I could. And honestly, I just think that's natural storytelling. And if I was to sit down with a corporate client and look to try and tell whatever story it is they're trying to tell, to be honest with you, I would take something along the same lines of the same structure. What's your headline here? What's the thing that people really should get excited about? And then everything else seems to kind of flow from that once you have that understanding. So that's really the approach, um, more than anything is to try and find that, that hook, um, musicians talk about that all the time to try and find that emotional hook to kind of get people reading the rest of the story. And if at the end of it, there's some things that you knew that you now know that you didn't know before, that is a huge benefit. But ultimately, people won't read something, particularly if it's three thousand words, which is which is what the era was. They won't read three thousand words if you don't capture their attention and entertain them. And that's kind of what I try and do, not always successfully. in fact, rarely successfully, when you finally get some wood on the ball and you really find that there's a story, there was one from a few episodes ago called Gutenberg on Broadway, which is just this strange kind of mix of themes and what have you. But it was really popular. I can't fully explain that other than I guess I must have put something in there that people found entertaining.
0: I know I keep listening. I'm also thinking as you're sharing this experience about the Avro Avro Arrow, right. it just makes me think how some how quite often that sometimes you're intrigued by a particular show or a particular book, by its title, by its topic. But yet the lessons, the morals, that the things that you can take away from it, that you can apply to your life, whether or not you're interested, for example, in planes at all, can really be impactful for you.
1: Well, I, I think the challenge in writing, which eventually leads to the, to the spoken word, the, but it always starts on the page. Uh, the challenge in writing is what I call the tyranny of the blank page, It's a version of writer's block. And I think that the trick is more than anything is to write something, anything. Once the words begin to flow, then it's actually relatively easy. And we live in an age where editing is extremely easy to do. So write, 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 write is what I tend to do. And then take big chunks of it back out again when I realize they don't fit or maybe they would fit in some other essay that I might write down the road. But I'm not formally trained. I didn't go to university to study English or any of those things. I graduated from high school in Vancouver. So I don't have a formal education in any of this. And in some cases, I use experiments to try and tell stories. I can think of one in particular called Mustang uh, that I wrote, oh, probably a year ago now or a little over a year ago. And it's actually exactly what you just said. It was just one word. I actually like the sound of that word. And I don't know what it is exactly, but I just like the sound of the word. And it has some really neat connotations. There's the wild horse. There's the airplane, the Mustang. There's the car, the Mustang. And then there, there was a movie from 1960, I believe, called The Misfits, which featured a roundup of Mustangs. And the writing challenge for me was to blend those four very, and there's, of course, the wild horse, the actual wild horse, which is the Mustang. And the whole essay is really based on trying to explore all of those themes in one work. That that the, the, the uniting theme to all of those really kind of offbeat different subjects is they're all called the same thing. And... Again, it was surprising to me because it was something I wrote really for my own interest. All of these subjects interest me, and I just like the word. And yet people thought that was interesting to them. I think that was getting on for 3,000 words as well. It all started with, I just really like the word Mustang, and it all flowed from there. And, and I, really, I really, really like the plane. In particular, I really like the sound of the plane. That will actually bring tears to my eyes when you hear it in the right context, in the right situation, it is the most wonderful sound in the world. And in fact, I, there's a little clip on the, the podcast where I actually take a bit of the sound of the engine and incorporate that into the soundtrack as part of the storytelling. And it's just a magnificent sound. Again, I'm just surprised that it, it was really just kind of a writing experiment that people have found really entertaining for some reason.
0: So you took this myriad of Mustangs and you put them all together. What was your big takeaway from the finished product?
1: Besides, if first you succeed, try and hide the surprise. <laughs> I honestly, I didn't think that that would find an audience at all. I didn't think anybody would be interested in it. Um, my big takeaway was that traditional storytelling structure doesn't always have to be followed. And again, if people are looking for, you know, did I have some some overarching theme, uh, and the answer was no, I really didn't. It was a series of ideas united by a name it's a very non-traditional structure and i think that um, sometimes that non-traditional structure works you have to continue to write well at least I, I hope to write well with all due respect to mrs beckett is sometimes you put the thesis statement at the end not at the beginning do that with caution because it may not work at all but every once in a while you come up
0: with something that for some reason just seems to resonate with people sounds like a great exercise in creativity
1: Well, and actually, I I would credit a guy called Paul McCready, Paul McCready's claim to fame amongst many, many, many things. But the thing that people will remember about Paul McCready, perhaps, he he won the Kramer Prize, which was the first human powered aircraft. Paul McCready is was an aeronautical engineering genius in, in so many ways. One of the things that he talked about in his book, which was called. I can't think off the top of my head. Less is more, I believe. And he talked about what the basis of creativity was. And he talked about a technique where you could use if you were trying to break a log jam with some aeronautical engineering problem and you really couldn't see your way through it. One of the ways they did that was to use a word that was completely out of context as a basis for brainstorming. So, for example, I think in the book he uses the word xylophone xylophone has nothing to do with what the problems were that they were trying to solve. And yet, by people saying, well, what do you think of when you think of a xylophone? Well, there's keys, and there's mallets, and there's a musician, and there's a musical score, and and it sends the mind in a whole series of different directions that it wouldn't have otherwise gone. The, the interesting point he makes is that the word doesn't matter that much. It just has to be something out of context. It just has to be something outside of the subject material that you're exploring, and then that will get you thinking, and, I, and again, I, I go back to Mustang as an example, is that, boy, it was not a challenge to write all those words. It was a challenge to take them out again, because I had way more stuff than I thought that people would ever be able to get through. You know, in terms of breaking writer's block or breaking creativity blocks, that uh, I would highly recommend Paul McCready's book, because he talks about exactly that, how to how to sort of foster creativity on demand, which is difficult, but not impossible to do.
0: Uh, I was going to ask you about the writing process, but you kind of talked about it being a little bit at random. unless mm. Or do you have a writing process? Well, I do.
1: It basically hits to start writing. For me, it's really just about I'm a natural procrastinator and, and do as best I can. When when I'm in the mood to write, I write as much as I possibly can until I'm almost exhausted because those periods of flow don't come Uh, on demand necessarily. So when you're in the mood, write as much as you can, you can always edit later. And in my case, when I think I'm done, I start to read it out loud because I know I'm going to eventually have to turn it into a podcast. That's one reason, but that's actually something I could recommend for anybody who wants to improve their writing is to write with the intention of reading it even if you don't ever intend to record it or ever intend to have anybody listen to you that's not the important part because what i find is that once i start to read it out loud it's hard to quantify but half of the text changes in some way i add something for clarification i take something out for clarification or i'll reword it so it's easier to speak out loud and and the interesting thing is is that if it's easier to speak out loud it's easier for people to read And I revise through speaking it out loud, and that's really kind of, that's my process, such as it is, is that knowing full well that when I think I'm done, uh, once I start reading it, I'm probably more like half done.
0: Is it ever really done, though? That's the
1: question. No, I have a sort of a self-imposed rule, and that is once it's published, like once it's a podcast, or once it's um, on Medium, I don't change it, other than, than to correct factual errors. Like if it was 1959 and the actual date was 1960 and I have it wrong in the SI, I will correct it. I will do my best to correct it in the podcast as well. But what I don't do is I don't go back and say, well, you know, now I'd like to change this paragraph. No, I think that you owe it to your to your audience to say this is a complete this is all online. Of course, I mean, it's not like this is any of this is going on to paper. I think you owe it to your audience that once you've said, I'm done with this, I'm done with this subject, that you are really done with it. And if you have other things that you need to say, then you should write a new essay. You shouldn't go back and revise the one that you've published. I think that the audience deserves to know when you're, when you think you're done and read it on that basis. And if you're not happy with it a year from now, and that's true of a lot of stuff that I write, tough, write more and write better is the way I approach my own work.
0: So you shared a lot about your personal storytelling and obviously giving some people advice in terms of creating their own stories or telling their own stories. What about corporate storytelling? How, how is that different and how do you go about getting a corporation to tell their story or does it work differently?
1: No, actually fundamentally it doesn't. I think storytelling is, a, is an ancient art. Um, frankly, there's nothing new under the sun in terms of how stories are told and how people are entertained and engaged by storytelling. And I think actually, if you can turn your corporate story into something entertaining that people want to listen to or read or participate in some way, then mission accomplished engagement is the most elusive thing. In all of any sort of communications, marketing, whatever, the ability to engage with the audience is the single most difficult thing to do and is a precious, precious commodity. If you're a corporation, I think you you use fairly traditional storytelling techniques to make the audience interested in what you do. And I'll tell you a very quick story about that. Um, one of the people I interviewed for the, the Work Not Work show was a guy called Tamir Moscovich, who, amongst many things, does branded entertainment and one of his best works in my view was a a 90-minute film on a guy called it's a japanese name which i will not try and pronounce but the name of the film is called kaz k-a-z and it's a 90-minute branded spot for sony's gran turismo video game i don't play video games because i get enough screen time doing other things but it was so well done that I actually got to the end of it and said, gosh, you know, maybe I should check out that video game. I really, it, it sounds crazy, but it was actually what I thought. And I just thought this is utterly amazing that through the power of effective storytelling and exquisitely good filmmaking, I was prepared to sit through a 90-minute commercial for video games. I just think that's staggeringly good at that particular art. It, it, and I don't feel like, I've been sold or I don't feel like I've been had one put over on me they're not they're not embarrassed to tell you that they're at the end of the day they're in the business of selling video games but it's done with great art and I just think that anybody who's looking for you know, has a story to tell for their particular corporation. Car video games are actually pretty easy to tell stories about in some ways, because they're kind of, there's lots of graphic, they're highly visual. There's some interesting characters associated with it. But I think that you can take virtually any subject, and if you approach it, and I'll point you to that that example specifically, if you approach it like Tamir Moscovich approached the movie Kaz, then you have an opportunity to tell your story in a way that people are actually going to pay attention, listen, and absorb. Interesting stories can be used in a variety of ways to achieve a variety of ends and I I wouldn't approach corporate storytelling in any other way other than you, other than have the standard of if people aren't interested they're not going to read through to the end. <laughs> Simple as that. Wow. Or they're or they're not going to listen to the whole podcast or they're not going to listen to um or they're not going to uh, watch the whole video. You know, I actually have got some statistics that I sort of use as my guidepost like I do these audiograms these little 30 second spots Basically, it's, you know, the podcast plus a still image and, you know, they're a minute long, typically no longer. They watch the first sort of 10 to 15 seconds. So you better say something really interesting in the first 10 to 15 seconds if you want to have any hope at all of people listening to the whole story. Now, I think that you you have to earn the audience. And I think if you keep that in mind, if you're a corporate storyteller, that you have to earn your audience I think you'll be just fine. But tell it like any other story. Make it interesting.
0: I think you've offered us a lot of sage advice. One question that's still intriguing for me is the name of your podcast, Not There Yet. How did you come up with that and what does it mean, if anything? Well, it's actually
1: quite meaningful in the sense that I want my life to be a journey where I never quite reach the destination. And that I I love a great road trip, my wife and I love to go on road trips. In fact, the journey, the actual being on the road is almost the best part. And I sort of think that life's like that in a lot of ways is that that for me, I hope that I'm 57 now. I hope that I live another 30 years, at least maybe more if I can. Um, I hope that I'm as curious about the world and that there are still things that I want to do and places I want to go and people I want to meet and things that I want to see Forever, you know, for my entire life. So I think that, you know, not there yet really is this idea that and and I think that people will look for a connection between the title and the episodes. And there really isn't one. It's really more kind of this idea that I never really want to quite reach my destination. That's kind of the beginning, middle and end of it, Greg, I have to say. I just don't want to be I don't want ever to be there yet. So I'm definitely not there yet.
0: So as long as you're not there yet, there'll always be more episodes to come. You better believe it. Keep on listening. And two lines about what that Work Not Work show is about. Thanks for the opportunity to to quickly describe that,
1: Greg. I mean, the Work Not Work show is really about people who have dream jobs, jobs that you and I would have wanted to do when we were kids, perhaps astronaut, science researcher Guy, The the most recent episode was a fellow who has tasted 20,812 different kinds of beer, and that's his job. That sounds really interesting to me. So it's really a show about people who have either interesting or dream jobs, but for the most part, love to go to work in the morning.
0: (laughs) If people want to get a hold of you where they can find your podcast, etc., what's the best way for them to do that? The
1: logical entry point are the two websites. In the case of Not There Yet, it's n-t-y-e-s-s-a-y-s dot com. And the entry point for the Work Not Work show is this is a really clever one, the.worknotwork.show. And we're also on Twitter and Facebook. So if you search for either of those with my name, you will get to them pretty easily. But but probably the websites are the best place to go first. Wow.
0: Terence C. E. Gannon, it's been an absolute pleasure. Greg, it's
1: been a delight. I hope we have the opportunity to do it again in the future.
0: Once again, this is Greg Gazin. We appreciate you tuning in. Now, I'm not sure how you joined us, whether you joined us through directly through Toastcaster.com or iTunes, but either way, you can pick up the podcasts there. If you really enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you took a moment to leave us some feedback on iTunes, because it really helps with our ratings. Plus, also feel free to drop us a line. Tell us what types of things you're interested in, what your Toastmaster specialty is, or what kinds of things you like to speak about, and perhaps maybe we'll even have you on the show. This is Greg Gazin. Till the next time. This episode was sponsored by Corey Outsmarts the Butterflies, a new book by Greg Gazin, Geared to ages 8 to 80, whether you want to improve your speaking skills or build your confidence, this short read is suitable for all ages. It's available at OutsmartingTheButterflies.com.